Let's open our book, our books, our Bibles, to the philosophy book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Lord, for giving us all kinds of Scripture, all of it inspired by God, all of it profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Every word of God is pure, and so is the book of Ecclesiastes. A book of philosophy. Except if you were to take this book out of our Bibles and publish it, it would be in the form of a pamphlet. It's so short because God is concise. God is blunt and direct, and yet the book of Ecclesiastes is thorough, and it's going to introduce a whole lot of subjects to us. Let's start with the first three verses in in brief review of what the book is about. I want you fully understanding this book when we leave it. The first three verses are the introduction. They tell us where Solomon is going. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? The purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, the philosophy book of the Bible is to answer a philosophical question. What profit is there for man in his existence? What value or profit is there for all the efforts he puts forth in his life? All his labor, all his working, all his pursuing, what does it amount to in the end? What is it really worth? What do I exist for? What is my purpose? How do I find fulfillment? What is life all about? Well, he just told you in verse 2. All is vanity. Vanity means empty, futile, worthless, profitless. It is all worthless from a natural viewpoint only. From a spiritual viewpoint, it is all pleasure. Even when you're in prison, if your heart is right. Even when you're dying a martyr's death, they died with joy in their hearts. They died with a song on their lips. And they died with forgiveness for their captors. That sounds like a pretty good way to go. Singing, forgiving, and praising. Amen. Even when they die a martyr's death. Let's go to the end of the book and see its conclusion. Where he says the same thing, but adds to it the bottom line. The little pamphlet has a paragraph at the end that gives us the solution. To the philosophical puzzle. Beginning at verse 8. 12, 8 of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. Saith the preacher. All is vanity. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The introduction and the conclusion are the same. Life is vain. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished, 
Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There is no satisfaction, fulfillment, profit, or good in all the things that are found in the world without the presence of God with them. They are all empty. They are not satisfying. They do not provide man a purpose for living. The purpose for living is God himself. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All of my research, all of my physical, philosophical experimentation resulted in this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. In between, he's going to tell us, eat, drink, enjoy good in your life. Love your wife, enjoy your job, and work hard. That's, a nat- that's the natural things that we do. But that is to all be done upon the foundation of fearing God and keeping his commandments. Without that, life is hopeless. You know what I want to say? I wish you could all handle plain speaking, since the Bible always speaks plainly on every subject. Life is a blank, and then you die. You know what the bumper sticker says. For some of your children that will not be helped by their parents later in the day, I'll not say the blank. This time, just give me a second, and I may work up the courage. Because, you know, the world says that because they figured it out. There ain't nothing there. there. Do you know where substance abuse comes from? Because they're trying to find themselves. They're trying to find mercy. They're trying to find deliverance out of all their troubles. There's There's the introduction. There's the conclusion. All is vanity. What were the lessons we've covered so far? The first lesson of the book is verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, which means the preacher. Your King James Bible tells you that. Ecclesia, the church, the congregation, the leader of it, the preacher. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 4 through 11 is the first lesson that we saw. Man is in a cycle of vanity. One generation comes and another goes, and they don't learn a thing about how to find fulfillment in the universe. It's wonderful. The Lord compares it to the sun. It comes up every day and it goes down again. It comes up every day and it goes down again in in verse 5. The cycle of the winds in verse 6. The cycle of the water in verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea never gets full. Because the water evaporates from the sea, is taken up into the clouds, the clouds pass over the mountains, they... They drop their water down the mountains. The rivers run back into the sea. And it just keeps going. All of this is to tell you that life is a... You're on a merry-go-round that's going nowhere. He says in verse 9, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. You are in a cycle of vanity. We're going to drop you in the ground. You're going to fertilize dandelions. Robins are going to eat your dandelions. And they're going to fertilize some other dandelions. And that is your future from a natural standpoint. There is no fulfillment. Everybody's going to forget you. Verse 11 says, There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. 
It doesn't matter how current you are. It doesn't matter that it's the year 2008 that we're living together in it. Once you're gone, you're going to be forgotten. Because you've done nothing valuable in your life. From a natural standpoint. Whoa, this book. No wonder he said in verse 2, vanity of vanities. That means the superlative of vanity. It's the vanity of vanities. The second lesson in chapter 1 is in verses 12 through 18. That God has given a serious travail to man to exercise his soul and his heart and his mind. And that is to try to figure out, what am I here for? What is the real purpose for my life? And he can't figure it out by natural wisdom. Even natural wisdom itself is irritating and frustrating and painful to him. Because the more you know, the more you see the world's problems could be easily solved and you can't solve them because no one else has the wisdom you have. So it says in verse 18 of the the last verse of chapter 1, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. That is not godly wisdom and godly knowledge, because a man who increases godly wisdom and godly knowledge does not increase in grief and sorrow. This is natural wisdom and natural knowledge about how how to live, function, be successful in life. It doesn't amount to anything because it's frustrating. Because everywhere you look, everybody's an idiot. Especially the ones affecting your life. All is vanity. You know, you're ready to pull a gun and stick it to your head after chapter 1? He's got more. Solomon, by the inspiration of God, is going to tear us down to rubble. And then build us up in the last two verses. He'll give a few little kind hints in between. Thank you, Lord. Because you know what? You can make an atheist faster with the book of Ecclesiastes than almost anything written by man. And you can bring a person to suicide with the book of Ecclesiastes faster than almost anything written by man. But there's hints in it before we get to that conclusion. And there is a wonderful conclusion. We know the whole the conclusion of the whole matter, and we know the whole duty of man. It's to fear God and to keep his commandments. That there's a whole other world coming. Because God's going to bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2. Epicureanism is the ism that he rejects and defies in the first three verses. Epicureanism is the philosophy of Epicurus of the Greeks, who was born in the 4th century B.C. And the Bible uses the word Epicureanism. It's in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul ran into some of these philosophers when he was in the city of Athens. And he defied them just as well as Solomon did. He just used a different approach. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and judge all you guys anyway. What in the world are you building statues of gold and silver to the God of heaven who gives life and breath to all creatures? I I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. Superstition is not a good word to use with a philosopher. He thinks he's the wisest man on earth and he's figured out all the answers for all questions. And then Paul comes along and says, I perceive that in all things, you are too superstitious. And he said that in the middle of their religious service while they were having their devotions. Acts 17, it's a wonderful place to go and read. Epicurus. So Solomon said, let's try it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So in verses 1 through 3, he tries pleasure. Do you know what he said in the last part of verse 1 about pleasure? Behold, this also is vanity. He was so empty after trying pleasure. It didn't fulfill him. It didn't satisfy him. 
when he went to bed at night, after having spent all day in an amusement park, he was still just as unhappy as he was the night before. He was lonely. He was frustrated. What's my purpose in life? He was sunburned to boot, and he had lost $45. 30 to get into the stupid place, and 15 to buy two hot dogs. He said, Behold, this also is vanity. He said, Of laughter, it's mad. Just to go around laughing like the modern sitcoms, it's mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? What is the accomplishment of laughing and jesting and joking? So it was pleasure in verses 1 through 3. 4 through 11 is materialism. I'll be happy if I can get stuff. If I have a big house in a nice neighborhood with lots of cars and fancy furniture and the refrigerator stuffed, stuffed with luxurious food and I can eat well and I got a motorcycle for a toy and I got a boat and I've got all these toys, I'll be happy. So if you read down through verses 4 through 11, I made me great works. I builded me houses. Go read about his houses. It took him many years to build them and he had thousands of workmen. They were works of art. He planted vineyards. He made himself gardens. He got himself pools of water. He had servants born so that his household grew and grew and grew. So that the last part of verse 7 says, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I got so much gold and silver together in verse 8. And I had the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. The special treasures that kings like to keep. I had them because they brought them to me. I had it all. Verse 9, so I was great. You know, if we listen to someone who is small, like Epicurus, tell us the answer to our questions about life, you shouldn't even listen to him. Right. Epicurus never got to try anything compared to Solomon. Here's a man that was great, and he tells you this to boast for a godly reason. I was great. I was king in Jerusalem. He tells you that in Verse 1 of chapter 1, he tells you that in verse 12 of chapter 1, he repeats that so that you'll remember you are hearing this advice from the man who could try it all and who did try it all. So I was great in verse 9 and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. If I walked into a showroom and I liked something, bought it. If some architect brought me plans for something new to build in Jerusalem, built it. Been there, done that. Right. Solomon is telling us. Verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon, no profit in all your building, your orchards, your vineyards, your pools of water, your servants, your household, your treasures, your gold, your bank account, the returns that you got, there was no profit. I know what you're all thinking. And I have a little voice inside, too, that's, that's saying the same thing, and I want to punch it. You know what it says? Well, I'd like to just try it. <laughs> it was just a stupid little voice. At least let me try it. He tried it for us. Do you know what faith means? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You're never going to see what Solomon did, but Solomon did it, and you should believe it. Amen. Don't, don't, you young people especially. There, there isn't anything there. Solomon told you there's nothing there, and we've told you that there's nothing there. Some of us have tried quite a few things in our lives. And there's no satisfaction or fulfillment there. They leave you empty. Solomon said it. 
verses 12 through 17 of the next lesson of chapter 2. This lesson is that wisdom, natural wisdom, is superior to folly, but even natural wisdom is vain. Because the wise man's going to die just like the fool. And what a pitiful thing that is. A man who's applied his life to live wisely with natural wisdom ends up dying just like a fool. And it gets it's so bad that Solomon says in verse 17 after this fifth lesson of the book, Therefore I hated life. I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And that lesson there is that wisdom, though it excels folly, it doesn't help me through life. I'm still going to die at the age of 70 or 80 or 90. You know what the rule is. You know what the exceptions are and why. And so is the fool. There's no difference made at all. The next lesson is in verses 18 down through 23. And that's the vanity of heirs. Oh, the pain for Solomon to think, for Solomon to watch. He looked out his window of his library. He sat in his library. He had accomplished so much. He had built Jerusalem to be the greatest city on earth. He controlled an empire that ranged from the Euphrates River to the Nile River, from the Jordan River and Arabia to the Mediterranean Sea. And he sat in that library looking on his laptop at all the money that he had, all the buildings that he had. Men would come in and report to him about the maintenance projects on all of his buildings and projects and pools and households and everything. And then he would look out the window and he would hear... As Rehoboam drove for a layup. Come on, fa- come on, fathers. Solomon sat there with all of his wisdom and looked out the window as Rehoboam drove for a layup. Said, oh no. I have accumulated all this by wisdom and understanding and knowledge and I'm going to give it to a basketball boy. Look at verse 21. There is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Who is that man? Solomon. He's going to refer to himself in the third person several times, and some of them you're going to find very interesting. There is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. Oh, painful. This also is vanity and a great evil. It tore him up. That he had been so wise, so prudent, and used such equity and good judgment, and had exercised his knowledge, and he was going to be laid in the ground, and as soon as his corpse was cold, Rehoboam was going to be spending everything that he had saved, and built, and done, and ruining it, and wasting it. And was that true? It was terribly true. It was almost like this is a prophecy. Rehoboam, days into his kingdom, loses ten of the tribes of Israel. Can you believe that? Vanity. Verses 24 through 26 are mercy. After six terrible lessons, we have a little mercy. And that is a conclusion, a temporary interim conclusion that he gives us before he gets to the end. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? You think you can eat better than Solomon? Read First Kings chapter 4. Read what the Queen of Sheba said when she saw his table served. Her breath was taken away, and she couldn't speak. She said, the half was never told me. 
Verse 26, for God giveth to a man that is good in his sight. This is a good man. This is a man who fears God and keeps his commandments. God gives to such a man wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit for the wicked man. This is good and a blessing to the righteous man that is good. And so we have this little interim lesson here of goodness. That is, moderately, with moderation, with contentment, enjoy some of the simple pleasures of life. Do not think that getting more is going to make you happy. Do not think that great gaining in natural wisdom is going to make you happy. Do not set your affection anywhere but on taking a little bit of pleasure in being good before God. So we come to chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. This will be our lesson for this assembly. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now. And that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Let us look at these verses. The first and most important thing that we must understand about these 15 verses is the nature of the list that is given in verses 2 through 8. What kind of a list of opposites do we have here? I hope that I can make this plain. Lord, help me. This list is not a lesson in discretion to tell you that there is a time to weep. And so that you should figure out and learn what times you should be weeping. And then that there is a time to laugh 
And that in order for you to be wise and discreet and prudent, knowing the right time for everything, you should learn what times are appropriate for laughter. That would be a lesson in practical wisdom, and that is not the purpose of this section. It is not the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is describing times that someone else chooses for us that affect our lives where we end up weeping. It's times someone else chooses for us where we end up dancing or mourning or killing or healing. This is God's choice. Everything, let's look at that first verse, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. There is a time for war and God sets the time. Because Daniel chapter 2 tells us the times and the seasons are in His hand. Everything that can happen to a man or everything that a man can do has its own season or time, and God is the one that sets that time. We understand the following list in verses 2 through 8 to be God's choice of a season or a time for a variety of events. You may be active in those events. You may be choosing war. You may be in a position where you can choose war. You may be in a position where someone else chooses war for you. But the time that brings war about is God's choice. We understand this to be a list of circumstances that God providentially sends men to exercise them, because that's what we're told in the context. Time and chance are under the control of God, not under the control of those with ability, wisdom, strength, or might. Ecclesiastes 9.11 tells us that. This is a very important issue of interpretation. What does this list mean? Does man pick the time for these different things? Or does God pick the time for these different things? This is not a lesson in discretion of when you should laugh or when you should not laugh. This is a lesson that God is going to bring things into your life that will cause you to laugh. And God is going to bring things into your life that will cause you to mourn. God is going to make your life futile and vain because every effort and plan of yours is going to meet with failure. Eventually. If we were to take the other position on these verses, it it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't fit the book of Ecclesiastes. And it doesn't fit its context. Watch its context, and I hope this helps. Look at verse 9. At the end of this list of a positive thing and a negative thing, a good thing, bad thing, or two different kinds of things, after this list of opposites, we have verse 9. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? If this was a lesson in discretion, there would be lots of profit. Because we would have just been told when and how we should make choices. That there are choices to make. But the, the very verse that concludes the list says, What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? That's a rhetorical question. There is no profit. Because of all the things that happen in the list to men that you don't get to plan, you may be active in the crying. You may be active in the rending or the sowing. But God brings about the timing and seasons of events that causes you to rend or sow. And so it ends up your life, no matter what your plans are, God changes times and seasons, and you don't accomplish what you wanted to. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? Because times and seasons change, 
And so his best laid plans and most diligent efforts do not result in the fulfillment that he had hoped they would. Let's go to the next verse in context. We know what the overall context is. All is vanity. And that God has given travail to men to exercise them. And the travail is not so much as knowing when to go to war or when not to go to war. That can usually be figured out. Or when to laugh or when not to laugh. The travail is that God changes circumstances often, which makes your plans that you made in a different environment to now be outdated and worthless. Verse 10. I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Notice, as we conclude this list, Solomon is saying, I have seen the travail. I have just described a painful thing for humanity. And God gives it to the sons of men to exercise them. God changes circumstances which turns our plans upside down. Because we're... He wants us to tremble before him and humble ourselves before him. He's going to tell us that. Verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. That's God speaking. That's, I mean, Solomon speaking about God. God has made everything beautiful. Every one of those events in verses 2 through 8 has its own beautiful purpose and place. Remember Psalm 76 and verse 10 from earlier today? Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Whatever occurs, God is using it for his praise. That is what the text tells us. Even evil acts. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everything is beautiful in his time because God picks the time. From our vantage point, we don't pick a beautiful time for everything. We pick an ugly time for most things. Because we don't have the wisdom that God has. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. This is the verse for your worldview. Yes, it's right here. This is a verse that ought to be used when you use the word worldview. Their worldview is the things of this world. God hath set the world in their heart so that they want to accumulate the things of this world. So that they do not figure out, nor do they understand, that there is a God in heaven in charge of all events before whom they ought to tremble and fear and in whom they ought to believe and trust. Because God has set the world in their hearts. So that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. The reason I'm reading these verses right now, we're going to come back to them in a minute. The reason I'm reading them is, verses 2 through 8 is God's work. Those changing of times and seasons, a time to rend and a time to gather up stones, a time to pluck down stones, God changes circumstances so that you are involved in different endeavors outside of your planning. Because he is going to render your planning futile because all is vanity. And man can't find out the work that God maketh because it's the secret things of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The revealed things belong unto us and to our children to do them. Verse 12, I know that there is no good in them. There is no fulfillment in all those things listed above. And God just throws them at us in a cycle that continues forever while this earth exists. I know that there is no good in them. Here's what we ought to do. But for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. To live a good life of moderation and contentment and to enjoy it. And also that every man should eat and drink. 
and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. The short-term good, the little bit of good, a good meal, a good night of sleep, a good rest and relaxation. Enjoy the simple pleasures in a moderate way with contentment is what we should do from a natural standpoint. There's more to life than this, but from a natural standpoint, this is what we ought to do. Verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, notice all these verses, it's what God does, not what man does. The things in verses 2 through 8 are what God does. I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. So this context tells us that the list is not a suggestion for us to learn when to weep and when to laugh. It is a description of how life operates that God so changes circumstances that sometimes it causes us to weep and other times it brings us laughter. But he's the one in charge of those circumstances. God does it. You can't take away from it. You can't add to it. And why does God do it? To teach us to fear him because he is the end of all things. Right. You I have such little control over your life. Right. That which hath been is now. This cycle of things that are listed in verses 2 through 8 has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Even things in the past that you think are gone, God is requiring them to happen again and again. And there is a cycle of vanity. There's more that can be said. I hope that was enough on how we interpret the list. Let's go to verse 2. There's more that can be said. For those of you that are old enough, this is just a little bit of trivia to ease your minds for a moment. How many of you remember an American rock group named The Birds? That back in 1964 or something, came up with a song, Turn, Turn, Turn. I see a few heads nodding. That song, the entirety of that song except for the last little phrase, I hope it's not too late, is all from a King James Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. Anyway, what's that worth? Absolutely nothing. Now, let's get back to things of value from God's Word. They stole our King James Bible and corrupted that political activist, that communist Pete Seeger that wrote that song and played by the birds, was a communist. And he took that to get to work his way down to a time of peace. The last four words of verse 8, I hope it's not too late. The kind of peace they wanted was rebellion and anarchy, if you can remember what the 60s were like. Enough about that. Look at the first, part, the first, li- the first event in the list, verse 2. A time to be born. Now, if this list is a list of things that you choose to do, would you, would you meet me afterwards and tell me how you were involved in your time of being born? These are things God chooses. These are times and seasons God is in control of. And there is a time to be born. And I have, I have taught you the truth. I am not much. But I have taught you the truth. And I emphasize the sovereignty of God in your birth. And so does Solomon. A time to be born. Your birth is one of the most sovereign acts of Almighty God in the history of the universe. He did not ask you when you wanted to be born. 
He did not ask you where you wanted to be born. He did not ask you to whom you wanted to be born. He did not ask you with what you would be born. Do you know how much those four things have affected your life? Because of those four things, you can look at other people in the world who have advantages over you, and you will never be able to match them. Because God made a choice of a time to be born for you, and a place to be born, and to whom you would be born. And it affects your life. And it makes life vain and vexing. Because we all feel, by nature, and this is a wicked thought, we all feel by nature that we ought to have the best advantages ourselves. Because we're all selfish and proud by nature. But a time to be born. He did not consult you about any of those aspects. He chose them all without the least regard to you or your parents. Your parents didn't even know you were coming. All they knew is that your mother was pregnant. And then you came. The last person they were looking for. Because they'd never met you before. But God makes these choices. How many young men were born in the time of war and never saw the light of day beyond the age of 20? Millions upon millions. How many young men were born in societies that offered them no real opportunities? Billions upon billions. How many young men were born with room temperature IQs, keeping them from success? Many. This isn't to make fun of anyone. God makes the choice. And do you know what? Give me a room temperature IQ that will get down on his knees with me, and we can worship the God of heaven and read the Bible together and sing together. Who gives a rip about intelligence quotient? You know what? Faith doesn't depend on intelligence quotient at all. Faith depends upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God in your heart. But God makes these choices. There's a time to be born. And it affects your life. And so do all these other events affect your life. How many young women are born with average looks or less? That means the most that you can ever expect in life is Mr. Average or less. You say, that's harsh. I don't care if it's harsh. It's just true. God makes choices that affect your life. And do you know what we're, we're supposed to do because of it? We're to be exercised by it so that we fear Him. He's great and glorious. Don't you worry about your looks now. Do you know what He's going to do to you? He's going to give you a facelift. He's going to give you a whole lot of lifts. And you're going to be glorious. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it. Amen. The king's daughter is all beautiful within. Psalm 45 And the king shall greatly desire thy beauty. Psalm 45. The Lord Jesus Christ will make us beautiful on this life. In this life, it doesn't matter when compared to spiritual things. But see, Solomon isn't considering spiritually. He's just saying a time to be born, the effect it has. How many young women are born to negligent fathers, so they end up marrying a pig? The pain, the pain that I see and hear. Fathers, you have a duty to protect your daughters. A time to be born. To whom, where, when, what time, the season for it. You cannot alter or add to the work of God in any way, so fear Him today. As verse 14 tells us, God has done this since Eden, 
and he's going to keep right on doing it. A time to be born. Women desire sons, but God gives birth. Sarah wanted a son for Abraham very badly, so badly that she told him to go into her handmaid, Agar. Do you know how serious that is? Do you know how much mourning she went through before she would ever make a suggestion like that? And God gave her a son. You heard about Hannah this morning already. A time to be born. That time for Hannah to have a child was not her choosing. She would have chosen it a little earlier, like years. But in the end, who got the greater glory? God and Hannah. How many children did Hannah have altogether? Six. And who was her firstborn? Samuel. Was he better known in Israel than Peninnah's children? You don't know a thing about Peninnah's children. A time to be born. A time to die. I'm not going to go this slowly through them all. It's unnecessary. A time to die. Men guard against death, yet God brings it anyway. And its effects on men are very great. In Ruth chapter 1, a man of Israel took his wife Naomi. Because there was a famine in the land, the times and seasons of getting and losing. He lost enough that he had to go live in Moab. Do you know what it would take for an Israelite to go live in the land of Moab? That man took his wife Naomi and went to Moab with his two sons. They found two wives there. They married. A happy family, huh? Three couples living together, trying to make a go of it in the land of Moab. The father dies, and both sons die. There is a time to die. And God makes that choice of time. That doesn't mean that we're altogether passive and irresponsible in these things. The Bible says there's a time to die, and it says it right here. The Bible also says in this same book... Why should you die before your time? Because you can bring God's judgments upon you earlier than you otherwise ordinarily would have had them come upon you from your perspective. It's no change in God's perspective. There's no change in His time, but from our timing, we can live a more righteous life. You can honor your father and your mother and extend your life. And the time to die will be put off for you, all other things being equal. Remember last week or sometime recently, it was on a Wednesday evening two weeks ago, King Ahab thought he would disguise himself in battle and thus protect his life and thus prove the prophet of God to be a liar. And a man flung an arrow at a venture and caught him in the joints of his harness or the cracks in his armor, and he died that day. You know, there was a king over Egypt that was very favorable to the Jews. When Joseph was there, when Jacob arrived... When they began to prosper in the land of Goshen, there was a king there that took care of them. The Bible tells us that king died, and another king arose that did not care for Jacob's family. See, that's a death out of your control, not even related to you, not even a relative. And did it have effects upon that family? It had tremendous effects upon that family. The Bible's full of events like this. When you go and read about Dorcas in Acts chapter 9... Did it affect all the widows in that church that she had helped and served? But she was dead. And when Peter arrived, there were all those widows standing around. Look at what she made for me. Look at what she made for me. This woman served us. She was a godly and a good, loving woman. Why did she have to die, Peter? Just give me a minute. 
A time to die changes lives and affects lives. The Lord's been so merciful to us. For those of you that have lost close relatives, I am sorry. But I trust the living God whose ways are truth and justice and right and perfect. God works the opposite of planting and plucking up. In verse 2, Solomon planted himself orchards and vineyards. We're told in chapter 2. God sent Nebuchadnezzar in there and tore everything up that he had planted. They planted again. The Romans plucked up everything that was planted. There's a time to plant. There's a time to pluck up. Tornadoes come and pluck up things. There's a time when you have to pluck it up because it gets a disease. You have to pluck it up or plow it under. There are farmers that have crops ruined and have to plow them under after they planted them. It's a time and a season that makes man's plans futile, vain, and profitless and frustrating. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth if he plants a field and then God sends a pestilence or insects or a blight or a drought? So we can't find anything after God. So we go to God and realize, give us this day our daily bread. That's what we should do. Oh, a time to kill and a time to heal. I've got so many verses for each one of these points, but I don't want to belabor it any further. You know, there's a time to kill and there's a time to heal. God works them both. You know, we we talked recently about time and chance, Exodus 21.13, that says... If two men are out working together and, for instance, the head of an axe comes off and hits the other man in the head and kills him, who's, res- who's in charge of that death at that time in that way? It says God delivered this man into his hands, even though it was an accident. Right. But he's dead. There's a time to kill, even though you didn't intend to kill. There's times where you have to kill. There's times when others kill you. And it greatly alters the plans of men. You know, Jesus Christ stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And he he knowing the hearts of that whole audience, he said, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Eliseus. See, it says a time to kill and a time to heal. But God sent Elisha to a widow of Zarepta. She was healed, and the widows in Israel suffered in that famine. There were many lepers in the days of Naaman the Syrian. But you know that Naaman the Syrian was healed by Elisha from his leprosy. A time to kill and a time to heal. There's building up and breaking down. Solomon built that temple, and God tore it to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar because they had turned their backs on him. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. You know, Sarah had to have wept. That she couldn't have a son for Abraham who wanted an heir so badly. She had to have wept so bad that she suggested Hagar, her handmaiden. But do you know what we find out five chapters later? She laughed. God hath caused me to laugh. Because he gave her conception. All these things, this list, time to get and a time to lose. Listen, look at the stock market. 
If you don't know how to look at the stock market, go home and punch in Google Finance between the hours of 9.30 and 4 o'clock, Monday through Friday, and punch in any stock. I suggest Wachovia Bank. Type in WB in the little box that Google Finance gives you, and then just sit there and watch that thing go up and down. But while it's going up and down, I want you to go ahead and click on a one-year graph of Wachovia Bank stock so that you can see how much people have lost owning Wachovia Bank stock. A time to gain and a time to lose. An officer of Wachovia retired with a very modest savings for his widow when he died of 10,000 shares of Wachovia stock. One year ago, that was $60 a share. That's $600,000. As of a week ago, that was worth 78000 bucks. She had lost $522,000. On the way down, all the shorts get into the, the work. Shorting is when you sell a stock that you don't own and you buy it back later. They drove that stock into oblivion by shorting it. So they were gaining while the widow was losing, while it went from $60 a share to $7.80 a share. On Wednesday of a week ago, Wells Fargo, another bank altogether, reported good earnings, and the whole financial, all the financial stocks turned around and started up. Now those shorts that had made money all the way down at the widow's expense, oh, they were in a sweet bind. Sweet to those of you who don't like shorts that prey on widows. Because when a stock rises that you've sold, that means you're going to have to buy it back at a higher price. Right. So you're going to sell low and buy high. That doesn't work no matter how many times you do it. And so the stock came roaring back 150% in the last seven trading days. From 780 to 1950. There's a time to gain and a time to lose. You, you cannot appreciate... Unless you look at it and think about it and take a calculator out and add it up. How much money is lost and gained on a daily basis? It's in the trillions. And all the, the trillions fl filter down to every little investor. And some of them are little widows whose husbands thought they were taking care of them. Now, thankfully, that man had bought a long-term leap, which is a put option, and he's able to sell at 60 bucks a share so she didn't lose a dime that's all a made-up story, but I just want to tell it to you anyway. But there's, there, there are ways that a man who knows what he's doing can protect his widow in a situation like that. The point was for you to think about gaining and losing. Go punch a stock into Google Finance and watch it go up and down. Because there's gaining and losing. You look at this list, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Solomon gathered costly and wonderful stones to build his houses, and yet there's other cases in the Bible where a whole army would come into an area and every soldier, now when you've got 100,000 men or 500,000 men, and you're to go find the biggest stone that you can carry, and you're to carry it into every farmer's field and drop it there. That's in the Bible. That's casting away stones. Every one of these are the changing circumstances of life that affect men. And what it leaves us is totally dependent upon God. You look at that random stock market... Oh, it's ridiculous. A 150% run-up in Wachovia stock in five trading days. It's been seven or eight since then. In five trading days, what happened? Did something good happen to Wachovia? No. In the middle of those five days, they reported losses that far exceeded any analyst's expectation for that company. 
You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That is the whole reason I'm telling you all this. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what Solomon wanted you to learn. It doesn't make any sense. Is there some sense to investments? Of course. But, you know, the big picture, there's a whole lot of things that don't make sense. And they weigh on your decisions more than your sense. Because riches are not to men of understanding, are they? Time and chance happeneth to them all. You know, you're reading the paper that on a bad day in the stock market, when the stock market goes down 2%, Bill Gates used to lose $2 billion in one day. You say, ha ha, you know, the maker of Vista got his comeuppance. But remember, he also made $100 billion. There's a time to gain, a time to lose. Solomon accumulated all this, then he lost it as soon as his son took over. Lost ten tribes of Israel. And so you look down through all that list, there's a time to love. You know, there are so many examples in the Bible, you may set your love on someone and they don't set their love on you. Did Jacob love Joseph? Jacob loved Joseph and made him a coat of many colors. What did that love do for Joseph? Was it, was it warm and wonderful to have his father love him the way that he did? But in the very same context, that little coat of many colors caused his brothers to hate him. Right. And that had greatly affected his life. The Lord took care of him. Amen. There's times of war and peace. You know, the Bible tells us that when you go up to Jerusalem three times a year, I will cause all your enemy nations around you not to desire your property. Then in another book of the Bible, that was, that was the book of Exodus. Then in the book of Joshua, it says that God hardened all their hearts to come against Israel in battle so that they could all be destroyed. There's a time of war and there's a time of peace. This is a lesson in God's providence over the nations. This is a lesson in God's providence over your life. And the only happiness there is is to be content with the few, with the few modest, moderate pleasures that you have and to put your trust and fear in the Lord. So we have verse 9, there is no profit in all your labor because of all those times and seasons that God changes. Verse 10, it brings travail into the hearts of men, but God wants that travail there to exercise us by it, that we will learn to realize that there is not fulfillment in this life. There is not fulfillment in the stock market, in a marriage, in building up houses, in planting, in sowing. That is not the fulfilling thing, because God is going to change all that sooner or later. God's made everything beautiful in His time. But we don't see His time clearly, because those are the secret things of God. We just trust everything that happens to be under the control of a loving Heavenly Father. And He's put the world in their heart so that they never figure out what He's up to. They're just confused by it all. They wonder, where does evil come from? And God sent evil as well as good. They don't know where it came from. We know where it came from. We know all the answers to this chapter. I can't give you all the answers to this chapter. The the Lord didn't write the Bible that way. Right now, he wants to break us down and he'll put us back together. There are explanations for all of this. And Solomon's giving us hints at it right here in the context. In verse 12, I know that there is no good in them. Those things do not satisfy. Don't plan on them. Don't set your affection on them. Don't labor thinking that you've got them all settled down so that they're not going to disrupt you. Because the minute you think you've got everything covered, he is going to turn your world upside down if you put your love anywhere else but in him. 
but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Verse 12, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. To have life, to have been born, and to have life, and to have God give you your daily bread. Sit down and enjoy that daily bread. Do good in your life. Invite someone else to your table. Be kind. Be virtuous before the Lord. Thank Him for the good things He sent you. Enjoy them with moderation and contentment. This is a gift from God. But to those men who take those things that are up above, a time to build and put their focus on building projects, He will, change, he will tear that down in one way or another so that you, are end up, you end up trusting Him. Verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it. God doeth it. God doeth these things, so that men should fear before Him. To fear God is to respect and love Him as the Creator of the universe, and set your heart to please Him in every part of your life. Fearing God and keeping His commandments is the conclusion of the book, and He gave us a hint at it right here in these verses. That which hath been is now, There's been war, is war, will be war. That which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Things that have happened in the past that we wanted to avoid, we don't like to have happen, we've read about them, God requires them to happen again because He is the sovereign over times and seasons. And those times and seasons reduce our plans, our efforts, our labor, our work, wherein we labor, to vanity so that we will trust in the living God and realize that the conclusion of life is to fear God and keep His commandments. For anything outside of that is going to be brought to nothing. The day of your death, you will not take a single thing with you. And the day after your death, no one will remember you or any of your accomplishments. It is all vanity. But there is great fulfillment in life in knowing the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and loving and delighting in Him. And would we... Do that is my prayer. Amen.